0: We are in our series entitled Shattered, and as I've been looking and thinking through this series, I I was reminded of this story, and perhaps you heard about it, in St. Mary's Parish, I believe it was in West Monroe, Louisiana, uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, they were trying to figure out a way to jumpstart the economy. So they, uh, kind of the, the board there, the, the Chamber of Commerce, decided to build this uh, kind of a tourist center, convention center, a welcome center, and uh, they, they, they got the plans, they put it together, they did some, a little bit of testing, things seemed fine. They built this $3 million facility, it was a beautiful facility, and as they were putting the finishing touches on it, one of the painters came in and he was painting, and he noticed there was a crack in the drywall, and that shouldn't be, it's a brand new building, what's going on? So he notifies his supervisor, His supervisor comes in and the contractor is brought in, they're looking at it, and he sees that the crack, seems that it shouldn't be there. It's at a part of the structure where there should not be a crack. I mean, obviously in some places where it settles a little bit, there'll be small cracks, but this was a bigger crack, it shouldn't have been there, and the contractor recognized it. matter of fact, he recognized that shouldn't be there at all, so he had everyone leave, and as soon as almost everyone got out of the building, the building sunk into the ground five feet. See, what happened was, is they had built it on a swamp. Even though they had done some soil testing and things seemed right, they kind of just went against what was around them and they went, you know what, let's just build it and it'll be fine. And it sunk into the ground. And now they have a, th- a loss of $3 million. Now see, the truth of that, that building is something that I believe has a, spiritual, uh, has a spiritual relationship to us. And that many people think that they're, they're going to build what they see going on around them and not a way that it should be built. And it means that according to the truth of God's word. So people decide, you know what, I'm going to take just a little bit of this, I can have all the other stuff right, but I don't have to have the foundation exactly right, it'll be fine. I can kind of do what I want, mix, mix it here, add this, take that away, and I'll be okay. But the reality is, and is in, in time and experience will show that it's sinking, and it's inevitable. So the Bible shows us that, and, and so we have to understand that we need to have the proper foundation for living. And we see within God's word examples that are given unto us time and time again of what not to do at times. I mean, there are positive examples on what we should do, how we should live, but there are also warning passages meant for us, showing us of things that we need to avoid, possible pitfalls to our spiritual life that we need to make sure that we remove so that we don't sink. Now, today we're going to be talking about shattered religion, what happens when life goes to pieces. And we're going to see that there are people, and you know them, who play fast and loose with God's word. They might say that they are a follower of Jesus, but they don't live like a follower of Jesus is supposed to live. And we're going to see what happens to people like that. What happens to people who decide to add and mix and match to the faith, and they say, you know what, I'll follow God, but I'll do this as well. I'm going to engage in this sin. I'm not going to live a righteous life the way that God wants me to live. And we see, we're going to see what happens when we do that in our life, because there are terrible consequences to those actions. Now, we are in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is a transitional book, as we have learned in the past few weeks, between the time of the judges and known as the t- and the time of the kings. Now, these are early on in Israel's days. and the Judges, uh, it was a time of anarchy, really, in Israel. And it's known by this, uh, this, this verse that says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'd say that's a lot like our day a, day today, huh? Amen. Are people not living the way that they want to do? Everyone did what's right, that's right for you, but it's not right for me. Have you ever heard that before? That might be good for you, but that's not good for me. Or, I'm happy, you're happy doing that, but that's not what I should be doing. Or what God has for me? I mean, is not not everyone doing what is right in their own eyes in our own our day and era? We have to go back and say, okay, we can't live what's, do what's right in our own eyes. We have to say, what does God want us to do? How do we prevent, how do we solidify the foundation of our life by living the way that God wants us to do? Now, in order to do that, we, what I hope to do today is put together in front of us, or put in front of us, through these passages, we're going to be going through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. We're going to not spend a lot of time in each chapter, but kind of skipping through this, examining different episodes in these, uh, these chapters. And I hope to see that we see a warning that is set before us on things that we are not to do, and how, what corrections we need to make and how to live. We're also going to see what are the consequences if we keep going on in a faith that is, in essence, shattered because it's not complete and it doesn't have the right foundation the way that God wants us to have. So we have to ask ourselves that as we enter into this. Where is our faith? Is our faith one that is solidified and has a great foundation? Or are we mixing and matching and trying to make it a, a really, it's really a shattered faith, a shattered religion that's going to lead to destruction. So let's let's tune in. Let's look in our scripture. Let's let's turn to this passage together if you haven't already. But let's ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, I come into your presence today acknowledging, Lord, that you are God and we are not. And Lord, that as you are our father, we come to you as your children, knowing that we have been bought and purchased by the blood of your son, our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes to the truth of who you are. Open wide our hearts that we might uh, receive what it is that you have for us, that we might go forth to change, that we might forsake shattered religion, and that we might seek a true foundation in and through you. We ask your blessing on us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what well, the first thing I want us to do, and I, again, we're going to be walking through this rather quickly, is I want us to understand the characteristics of what shattered religion looks like. We can't forsake something we don't recognize. And just because someone says that they are Christian doesn't always mean that they are. You see this all the time. That's the one thing in our, our world today. People can self-identify. They'll say, well, I'm an evangelical, or I'm a Christian, but I believe that this is okay. It's something the Bible condemns. I believe that it's, I can be Christian, and I can sleep around with whoever I want to. Or I believe that I can, I can do this, and God is okay with that. I can steal. I can lie. And we'd say, no, 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 no. You can't just identify whatever you want. You have to place yourself with under what the Word of God says. So we have to understand the characteristics of what a shattered religion or faith looks like, because it's not our true faith. Well, first of all, we understand that we need to under- recognize its characteristics, and the first, first characteristic is this, it has faulty character, faulty character. Now, who is, the, who is the leader of the Israelites during this period of time? We learned a little bit about them last week, uh, Hophni and Phineas. Um, as David read to us. These are the sons of Eli. They were priests within the uh, meeting place of God, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Uh, We also learned last week, according to the text, that they were worthless men. Worthless men, meaning that they had uh, taken liberty with God's word. They played fast and loose with God's commands. They had been sleeping with the women who had served at the temple. They were completely immoral. They were also uh, had contempt for God's sacrifices. They were to live off the sacrifices that people uh, had given unto the Lord. There was a part and portion of it that was dedicated to the priest. And they had a certain way that they were to get that food. But rather than doing it in the prescribed way, they circumvented the process, got the food that they wanted, and the way that it was cooked, Even with the fat on it, which meant that the fat was just designated to God alone, and they are taking that upon themselves. These men had faulty character, and that's one of the first things that we see about um, bad religion or shattered religion. It has people with faulty character. These are not people that are are trying to seek God, that recognize their brokenness. These are people that are proud, that are arrogant, that are haughty, that want to go about their own way, and they are in churches. They are in churches today. These are people that are trying to see how much money that they can make, how much power they can get. They seek to be celebrities at times. They don't care about the truth of taking care of the least, the lowest, and the lost. They want to get power, prestige, fame, and will do anything to get it. And it's faulty character. That's not what God has for us. That's the first characteristic of a shattered religion. And it's not just with them. It also involved their father, Eli. Now, Eli seems like a very reasonable guy. He almost seems like a very godly guy. But what we see happen, there's a little blurb that is given in the text for us about, Levi, about Eli. It's fascinating. See, the Israelites, remember, had gone into battle. If you're unfamiliar with the story, they'd gone into battle. They should have routed the Philistines. Instead, they were defeated soundly. and 30,000 people died. And then uh, the, a messenger, a man of a, Benjamin, runs back to the city to give the news to the city to let people know what was going on. They didn't have email. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have automatic updates. They had to have a guy run back and give a report. Now, Eli is the high priest. He is waiting to hear the news. This young man runs in, and he runs right by Eli, and, and probably assuming that, I mean, the man is dressed, he's sorrowful, he's been crying, he's wearing sackcloth, obvious signs that something bad had gone on. But Eli, he can't see, he's, he's nearly blind, so he can't see this, but he hears uh, the news spreading around, he hears the, the city people wailing, he inquires of what happened, and the man tells him, we were defeated, your sons were killed, both Hophni and Phinehas, and the Ark of God was captured, which was the symbol uh, the biggest symbol of Israelite identity in that period of time. It's the central peace fixture. Um, it is the rallying point. I mean, it's, it's the, the visible symbol of God's manifest presence to the people. And so he is, he is r- just overwhelmed and it says that he, he tipped over his chair, fell back, broke his neck, and died because he was, it's interesting, heavy. It says in the text he was heavy. He was a heavy guy, which is unusual, by the way, in the ancient world. It meant that you were eating a lot. Now, it, some scholars assume that he was actually participating with his sons and eating part of the fat that of his son sacrifices. So, in other words, he is also abusing his right as a priest. Now, again, there's a little bit of conjecture there, but there's a reason why they put that part in there that he's heavy that he falls back and breaks his neck. The idea was he was at least complicit. But we see that there's faulty character being involved. They weren't seeking truth in the inward parts, willing to stand for truth and make the necessary corrections to do what God wanted them to do. Their character was off. And the scripture talks about this, the danger of what happens if we we go and, and follow faulty character as the book of Proverbs clearly shows us in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22. It says, When the righteous increase... The people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the wicked rule, people groan. Because wickedness is a lot of free reign. There's no aspect of justice. wrongs being made right. People are taken advantage of. They're being run roughshod over. So when the wicked rule, the people groan. So we see there's faulty character, but that's not all. There were also uh, individuals, these guys were making foolish choices. They allowed this lousy leadership to continue. The people knew. Remember, these guys had a reputation for being wicked, worthless men. And they allowed it to continue. They foolishly chose to let these guys continue on in leadership. And you see that the Israelites making foolish choice after foolish choice. The fact they bring into the ark of God into the battle because they think to themselves, you know what, we didn't have the ark before. Grab the ark. And let's take it into battle. Now, from the outside, it looks pretty good. I mean, the ark had been this wonderful, uh, had been a powerful symbol. It had been, if you remember the ark and you haven't seen, or if you're unfamiliar with the ark, let me tell you. um, First of all, you just need to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. That will help a little bit. But uh, in the ark, what you see at the ark was it was given to Moses... Uh, at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and he is uh, given this vision on what it's to be. It's about uh, three feet by three feet and two feet wide, if I remember correctly. I could be a little off on the dimensions. And it was uh, made out of acacia wood. And it was covered in gold. With It had a mercy seat that was above it, a lid. It was also covered in gold. And on the top of it had the cherubim with their wings that were touching. And it would be a visible symbol of God's presence. And in it was to have the Ten Commandments, the tablets. Actually, the second set, because remember, Moses broke the first. They were placed in there, as well as Aaron's staff which had budded. Remember, his leadership had been questioned, and uh, Moses had come up with a test to to authenticate his leadership. All of the leaders of the different tribes brought their staff, and the one who had their staff bud was the one who was the favored leader, and it was Aaron's. That is in there is also a jar full of manna, uh, manna from their time in the wilderness where they had been sustained from the heavenly bread that had come down in the wilderness. So these are all within the ark. At this period of time and it was also uh, the ark that they had carried into battle and they had four gold rings on the sides of it it took long poles the Levites would be the only ones carrying it they were to lift it up Uh, not anyone could could carry it or even gaze upon it or look within it it had a deadly penalty Uh, that was a part of it but people had a great deal of superstition around it almost thinking that it was a good luck charm you actually see this, by the way, in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the German, remember, the Nazis had been pursuing it because they believed that whoever took the Ark have, uh, with their army, they would be invincible. So they thought they could control God with this Ark. And so they take this Ark into battle, believing that it's the Ark that is going to protect them, not realizing it's the, the, ark, the God that the Ark is representing. They got it wrong. They looked at it as a a magic charm. They made foolish choices. And it's also just indicative that they had flawed convictions. Flawed convictions. I mean, they're passionate about bringing the ark in, but it was a wrong, misheaded calculation and, and conviction. It wasn't about the God that the ark represented. I mean, have you ever seen people that are zealous and have firm convictions about something and can be completely wrong? Zeal alone does not indicate whether the person's in truth or not. You can be zealous and can be completely wrong in your zeal. And they had flawed convictions. People might have convictions, but here you see that they're completely flawed. That is a a characteristic of a shattered religion, that that those who follow have flawed convictions. They'd seen the ark as a good luck charm of sorts. I mean, remember, though, that... That the ark uh, was very had a very powerful symbolism attached to it because before the Israelites crossed into the the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they had remember they had carried the ark and as soon as the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water of the Jordan, it dried up. They walked through. I mean, and remember when they got to Jericho, they took the ark and they carried it around once every day, and the last day they did seven times. I mean, the ark was the visible manifest uh, symbol of God's presence. And remember, God would come down in the tabernacle in His uh, kind of this cloud, known as the Shekinah glory of God, where people couldn't even go in because it was so brilliant and so powerful. And God would uh, said to dwell above the cherubim. But they they were seeing it as a big good luck charm. Now I want to continue on in this text. We need to look back at not just chapter four, but into. Actually, in the latter part of chapter 4, look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Now, Eli, after he had died, remember, he had judged Israel. He'd been a judge for 40 years. He was a priest, but he's also a judge. In verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant. Now, remember, Phineas had already been messing around with the girls in the temple. So he didn't care, didn't honor his marriage vows. He's a, she's about to give birth. And when she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death the women attending her had said had said to her do not be afraid for you have born a son. This was the greatest highest thing that a woman in the ancient world could achieve. Giving birth to a son, a boy. And instead of it being a time of celebration, she doesn't have it's a time of humiliation. She can't focus on it. The ark is gone. Cuz again, it's it's thinking that God now is not with us any longer either cuz he's attached to the ark. You have to also remember how they looked upon gods in the ancient world, by the way. Gods were known to control certain geographical regions. You see that within the different parts of the Old Testament where they say, their god is the god of the hills, our god is the god of the plains, or this god is the god of the mountains, the god of thunder, because there's a, a pantheon, a hierarchy of gods. Not understanding who God is, that he is the god of heaven and earth. That he's not a lesser God and r- ruling just the fertility or the rains or anything like that. That he is the God over everything. And they, it, they had a wrong understanding. She's saying that God is departed from us. And in some, many ways they were right. But not because of the ark. Because they had a misunderstanding of things. And the ark is gone and goes into the Philistine control. And they feel like they have now a faith without a center. See, that in some ways they were right. It wasn't the ark, though. It was because they had departed from God and looked at it as a magical charm. But see, many of us, we have faith, but we don't have a center. We might go to church, but we don't have Jesus. You know, there's actually a church that was started a few years ago called the Atheist Church. Anyone heard this? They are actually called themselves Sunday Assemblies. They've been, they have pockets over a place, and they come to celebrate nothing. These are people that want the accoutrements of religion, but they don't want God. They want the community, but they don't want the conviction. They want fun, but they don't want faith. And see, they, they want to have all of these different things, but they're missing the center reason why we are here together, because of Jesus. Faith without a center. Where's your faith? What's it in? Is it in some other object? Is it in something that you might do? Is it in a religious teacher, maybe a school that you've gone to? Perhaps it is in uh, how you've been taught or or the schooling that you have. Maybe it's in your baptism. Maybe it's in uh, an act of confession. Maybe it's in your prayer life. Maybe it's the fact that you have fasted or you have given money or you have gone to holy sites and had holy relics. See, that's faith, but it's a faith without a center. That's not real biblical faith. Because Jesus isn't about the outward uh, conformity; he's about the inward transformation. Because if he gets the inward transformation, he gets the heart. Everything else follows suit. Because the heart is the steering wheel of the life, and you get to control the steering wheel; it can direct the car where you need it to go. But see, outward behavior just pushing that—it's like pushing the outside of a car and trying to move it over. It's hard to do. See, it's shattered religion has faith without a center. Where's our faith? We have to ask ourselves that question. And we have to ask ourselves another question is this. What is the cost or the consequence of of following this shattered religion, of building our own faith? There's a cost involved, and I want us to see this. There is a huge cost involved for each one of us if we don't live a life according to the way that God has laid out within His Word. There are several different costs. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. First of all, it involves incalculable suffering. When you go your own way, you are only hurting yourself, but you're hurting those around you. Jonah is a great example. Jonah is called by God to go speak to the Ninevites, showing God's heart for the nations, but he hates them so much that he goes and gets on a boat headed in the totally opposite direction. In his disobedience, God comes after him, God won't let him go. And then the waves start coming, and then suddenly he's in danger. But not only is he in danger, but all of those sailors on the boat are in danger because of his action. See, when you make choices and you go against God, you're not just hurting yourself. You are hurting the people around you. See, that's what happened with the Israelites, that they decided to go against God, and it went, they went into battle, and 30,000 people died because of that. David is another classic biblical example. He, has, he decides to have a census. He wants to see how big his army is so he can boast in his power, even though he's warned not to do it. God doesn't want him to do that because God wants him to trust in God alone, not in himself or in his army. And he issues the census, and what happens? God responds. And many people die because of his rebellion. There was a consequence for that action. And you have consequences. If you and I were to, if either one of us were to leave and start living life on our own, we're going to have consequences for actions. See, the world today wants to make you think that there are consequences for your choices, that you can go on, and you can do whatever you want, whatever you want, and no one's going to say boo, you can, ladies, it, this is what our world says. You can have an abortion. It's just between you and your doctor. Who's it going to hurt? And there's women, countless women, who have come forward afterwards saying how much that hurt them. And it still scars their soul. But our world just makes it sound like it's just a simple medical procedure, not that big of a deal. After all, we're calling it planned parenthood. We want it to be planned. See, it's, it's in the language. It's how they use the language. It's, it's showing it, and it does that time and time again. The world tries to make everything just like I gets Not that big a deal. You can do whatever you want. Oh, they can't say anything against you. If they do, they're evil. They're bigots. They don't care about you. But See, that's what our world wants us to believe, is that we can do whatever we want. But there is a cost involved, and it's suffering. And not just ours, but those around us. And people don't realize that. Just the other day, Campbell's Soup, I don't know if you guys saw this or not, Campbell's Soup has an ad out now where they has two men feeding a little boy. It's a a gay marriage thing. And so they're putting it now in their advertisements for Campbell's Soup. And I was reading some of the comments, and I hate reading comments on websites. And I read some of the comments Anyway. And some of them were like, oh, so happy to see these happy families, and it doesn't matter who you love. And, and, I, and I've, read, I've read too much information to read about families who have grown up in that situation and how horrific it has become for them. And it's gone against every form of science, and, it's, and some people have even gone and went onto the website and said, why are you denying a father and a mother to this child? I was reading about one woman who said, my, hu- my husband left me, went into a gay relationship, was celebrated by everybody, left me, left our children, and said my children now are forced into this. I have no choice. And they are trumpet before everybody. And I don't tell them about all the psychological, mental, the sorrowful, depression things that they're going through. Because that's not how God made it to be. But our world just has lost its brain. We have to go back to what God has. God has. Because it leads to suffering. Even though the world might say it's great, people might trumpet it, and how wonderful it is, it leads to incalculable suffering. We have to know the cost. It also leads, I'm going to go through these rather quickly, increased superstition. Increased superstition. We see then that after the Philistines and, and, uh, got the ark, they brought it into the temple of their god Dagon. And then they left it in there overnight and wake up in the morning and Dagon's statue is falling down. His arms are broken. I mean, everything's broken on him and, and it's laying on the threshold. Now they think that the threshold has some magical power. And not only that, they see that this keeps happening. So they decide to, they consult their elders. They said, we need to get this, this thing out of here. It's bad luck. So what should we do? They said, ship it to one of the other cities. So they shipped each city and every time it shows up in a city, people start getting sick. I mean, there's like, some people actually think the plague is going on, there are tumors that develop, some people think that they're in less desirable parts of the body, making it uncomfortable for them, as many scholars have surmised, and, and every time now, the words gotten around, people can't take it, so they say, hey, they see the ark coming down the road, they're like, no, get it out of here. And people can't take it. So they're like, what do we do? They're like, we got to get it out of here. we got to get the Israelites to take it back. We need to have a guilt offering. So what they do is, is they come up with this idea of sending it back on a cart with these cows who had just had calves. They're milk cows that just had calves. And so they put it on this wooden cart, and they send it in this direction. Now, they lock the calves up, and a normal cow would turn back, to its calf to feed it. So they, they had tied to the cart, and they watched. And they said, if it goes back to that direction of Israel, we know then that it, it's, it's God is behind this. And the calves go on, and they're lowing as they go. And they're like, wow, God was behind this. But they, they also put offerings in there, golden tumors, golden uh, mice in there. They come up with this idea of offering this guilt offering. This is all superstition, by the way. I mean, and the Israelites had superstition too because they were looking at the ark as a magical object, but we see here that they're also engaging in superstition. And when we depart from God, superstition begins to reign. You ever been superstitious? I mean, in one of the superstitions I've noticed yesterday was October 10th, 1010. And on, on, on October 10th, 2010, there were more marriages from people that came from Asian regions because they're superstitious about the number 10. That's like a magical significance. So to get married on October 10th of 2010 meant your marriage would be blessed. That's superstition. Superstition. Rabbit's foot. or Anything like that. Anything you want to do. Pick numbers. I, I have to do it on this day. I mean, we have these superstitions we carry within ourselves. And those are not of God. And they're not reliable. And they're from the pit of hell. We have to understand that. There's, when we depart from shattered religion, superstition then begins to increase as well as there's a cost of improper sacrifice. See, the Israelites, after they saw the cows coming up over the hill, they rejoiced. This is in Beth Shemesh, by the way. That's the city that's there. It was a priestly city. Uh, It was be known of a place for the Kohathites, which were responsible for caring for the ark. There were also parts of the uh, families of the Aaronic priesthood. This place is filled with priests. And so they, more than anybody else, would uh, rejoice when they see this ark coming over the hill. So they're like, party! So they grab the, the cows, they, uh, they take the ark, put it up on a rock, they kill the cows, they take the wood of the ark, they, I mean, not the ark, uh, take the wood of the cart, break it up, and then they offer a sacrifice. But the thing was, is the Jewish law didn't allow that type of sacrifice. That's the part that we miss. Only male cows are to be offered and only in certain ways by certain priestly families. matter of fact, some people think that there weren't even priests there, that the priests in the city, for some reason there weren't priests that were using it and doing the sacrifice, showing another it was an improper sacrifice that was being done. See, we are willing to cut corners when we want to get what we want. See, we're willing to offer sacrifices that God doesn't want us to offer. You see this actually in the book of Samuel, especially with Saul. Saul is... This very crazy character that we see. I mean, he's, he's really all over the place. One minute he's following God. One minute he's turning from God. One minute he's, he's great and he's a prophet. Another minute he's trying to kill his son-in-law uh, he, he's all over the place. And in one instance, he, you see him offer this. Uh, he is told to go into the Amalekites and destroy everything about the Amalekites. He's destroy the people. He's destroyed all the animals. He's not to keep any of it around. And so he does, he goes, and he, instead of killing everybody, he keeps the king, uh, Agag, uh, alive. And he brings back all of this, these animals to use for sacrifice to God. And he, Samuel shows up early in the morning and Saul runs to him and he goes, blessed of the Lord, see what I've done with what God told me to do? And he goes, I've done everything the Lord commanded me to do. And I love Samuel's line. He says, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? In other words, why did you neglect what God told you to do? And he's like, what do you mean I neglected it? I'm doing it. I beat him. I did what you asked. I mean, 90% of it. I did almost all of it. And the other parts I'm going to use for him. I'm changing the game. I called an audible, okay? We're going to offer it to God. And he's like, God wants obedience more than sacrifice. He wants to obey. And many of us try to make deals with God. We're willing to sacrifice in order to get God's attention. We'll beat ourselves down. We're willing to take different steps in our life. We're like, we'll sacrifice for this, but excuse my disobedience over here. That doesn't work with God. He wants your obedience. He wants all of our obedience. God treasures our obedience more than our sacrifice. Here they were offering up an improper sacrifice. But that's not all. I mean, this led, this had a tremendous cost and a consequence. It also led to ignominious shame. I love that word, ignominious. Ignominious. For those who do not have English as a first language, let me give you a little insight. Actually, for those who have English as a first language, let me give you a little insight. Uh, it means deserving or causing public disgrace or shame. So ignominious shame. I mean, it what it meant was is these people, these member of Bethshemesh after they offered the offering in verse nineteen of First Samuel chapter six says and he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They offered an improper sacrifice. They weren't honoring God as holy he struck 70, of, 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. I mean, you think he was bad to the Philistines. He's worse to the people almost of God because see, they knew the truth and they didn't operate according to it. Doesn't the scripture say let judgment begin with the house of God? Judgment's going to start with us. That's a scary thought. See, it was a shameful thing they had to suffer this shame. Then the men of Beth Shemesh in verse 20 of 1 Samuel 6 said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath jerim saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it to you. It just led to unbelievable shame. They were shamed because they had done it wrong. Many of us, we think that no one's going to see our actions you know, one day when we will stand before God, there will be, uh, uh, I mean, there, for many of those who did not live according, have did not trust in Jesus, there will be this sense of shame of rejecting what God had clearly revealed unto them. There is no second chance. There is no advocate to stand for them. Sense of shame. Have you ever experienced shame before? Shame before God would be, is, it, it, I mean, that's, that's the worst Shame. Man, there's times where I've looked at my son, and my son is uh, given to me as an example for sermons. Um, He Different than my daughters, he tests everything. I think it's just being a boy. I hope that's what it is. Um, And there was a time where I told him not to do something, and he looked at me, and he did it. You ever had that happen? You see that in the movie, Finding Nemo, remember that? He said, don't touch the boat. And then he swims out in the sea, and he touches it. And he gets captured because of his disobedience. He felt silly and stupid. See, with my son, he did it. And I said, why did you do that? And then suddenly he just, he went down and tears came into his eyes. He was ashamed because he realized that he'd done something wrong. And he had done it intentionally. And there's a time where I think where we're going to stand before God. And we're going to feel, for those who really don't know Jesus who think they might know it but not a living according to the truth of who he is and the, which indicates one really truly knows who Jesus is because remember we're not saved by works we're saved by faith but it's a faith that is shown in our works but there'll be a sense of shame I hope that's not the case for those that are here but here they had done something wrong and then there's this sense of shame and that also led to an inconceivable slandering of God's name an inconceivable slandering of God's name see I want to go back to when the Israelites first tried to use the ark as the good luck charm. What happened to it? See, it was captured. The army was defeated. Their leaders died. It also led them to take the ark and put it into the altar or into the throne room of their god, Dagon. And it's this understanding of your god is weaker than ours. Now, that, that initially was the feeling that they had. And obviously, God proved himself to be the one true god by Dagon falling down. But I believe that when we are not living according to the truth that God has revealed unto us, it leads to slandering of God's name. And I believe this is shown within the New Testament, especially Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind... A light to those who are in darkness. Now, Paul is writing this, by the way, just to give me a little context. Writing to the church at Rome, but there were people that were boasting of their Jewish heritage that because they had Abraham as their father, they felt they were great before God. And he's saying, No, 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 it goes back to the heart. He says this, you you could say all you want. You can make all these boasts of who your teachers were, where you grew up. And if you're, you're, you said you're a guide to the blind, you've helped other people, and you're a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? So he's saying then, you might have all the outward parts right, but really is it shown in the behavior and the depths of your life? That's my question for all of us. That's what this whole passage is about. You can have all the outward parts and not the heart. It always comes back to the heart. God always wants your heart. Don't try to play games. Don't try to excuse, God, excuse your, your actions and try to rationalize out of them. Does God have your heart? That's the question. He says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, this is one of the most indicting lines in all of Scripture, the name of God is blasphemed among those who are not considered above the, part of the, the covenant community, Gentiles, because of you, because they look and they're supposed to see God. That was the purpose that the Jewish race had, was to be a light unto the nations, but they failed in that. They failed. They were to be a light, and They failed. He's saying your job was to tell other people about who God is. That's now what our responsibility is. We've been grafted in to that truth a family of God, given great precious promises that now we are to be ambassadors to a lost world, pleading for people to be reconciled unto God. Now let me ask you this question. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. What do they read about God by your life? Tell me, what do people believe about God from your life? Do they believe that God is holy, or do they believe that God is hypocritical? Do they believe that God is mercy, merciful, or does he malign others? Do they believe God is compassionate, or condemnatory, or one of condemnation? Do they believe that God cares about the least, the lowest, and the lost? Or, is he, or, is they, or are we only trying to get money, prestige, power, and credibility? What is it? What do people see about your life? What do they learn about God by looking at you? What, can your, what are your, does your family believe? What do your friends believe? What do your coworkers believe? What do your classmates believe about God by looking at you? All right going to walk through these other parts rather quickly see perhaps you're here today and you aren't living the way God wants and I'm going to go through these rather fast first of all we need to make the proper corrections if we're to do what God wants us to do we need to make the proper corrections in our life we need to make some changes and God is a God of second chances and this passage is there so that we might learn from it and forsake that because we have hope in Jesus Christ we have been forgiven in and through him And that God will forgive those who come to him. As scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That he is the God of hope. He is the God that wipes away our mistakes, that takes our sins and puts them at the bottom of the ocean. Or as far as as the east is from the west, so much as he separated our sins from us, as the scripture says. That our God will take and help remake your life, as, as the book of Amos says, where it talks about, not Amos, but when the scripture talks about how the locusts have come and devoured our land and God will restore and recreate what the locusts have taken away. Maybe you have forsaken and squandered your life and made some very awful choices, but if you come to him in repentance and faith, God is the God of second chance. God is the God of hope. So we need to make some corrections. In verse 3, we see that Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord... With all your heart, if you're serious about this, you want to follow God now, you're repentant, you had been relying on all these extra stuff, but if you're repentant now, then put away all the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you. Asherah was a, the female consort of the god Baal, who was the goddess of, uh, he was the god of thunder and of rain and fertility. She was the goddess of fertility. Uh, they had Asherah poles, people would commit undecent acts underneath them or in the presence of them in order to gain or curry that god's, god's favor. They're saying, no, no, because the Israelites had been doing this, by the way. He says, you have these Asherah poles. You have all these symbols of pagan religion. You've embraced all these pagan and horrible things. And are you willing now to forsake them? And that could be in our world. That could be anything. We have modern Asherah poles. We have modern things that we have then let into our homes, television programs, websites we've gone to. These are are aspects that are demonic, pagan religion, sexual immorality. These are all, all aspects of the fallen nature and are demonic at their core. We have to forsake them, turn away from them. That's what he's saying here. You need to make the proper corrections. First of all, you need to restore God to his proper place. You need to quit trying to make God fit into your life. And then put your, instead of putting God above you and what you, I mean, below you, you need to put him above you. And you need to make the necessary changes that show that he is the Lord of your life. Restore God to his proper place Secondly, we must make sure that we run to God in prayer. Samuel begins to pray for the Israelites. The people even come to him and they say, don't cease praying for us. We're going into battle. Don't stop praying for us. Intercede to the Lord on our behalf. We need to make sure that we are running to the Lord in prayer because when we do so, we find that God reveals himself to us. Starts showing us the sins in our life and what he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. Thirdly, we must make sure that we remember his power. See, how does God respond once Samuel makes an offering? In 1 Samuel 7.10, we read, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. God is powerful enough to handle your situations. He's powerful enough to handle what you would go through if you need to make things right. He's powerful enough in your situation to take care of your needs and your struggles and your sins and your sufferings. That's how powerful He is. We need to remember that power. Fourthly, we need to make sure that we revere his prescriptions. It means we need to go back to his word, his principles, his precepts. We must adhere to his word and return to his word because if we don't have his word, we don't follow his word, we have nothing. It's the word that has is, is stood the test of time for centuries. And the scripture warns us not to add to or to take away from it that it is complete in and of itself. We must make sure that we are revering and following what the word of God says. Fourthly, or fifthly, we need to make sure that we repent from godless practices. What are those practices that you have that you're going on, you're on? What websites are you going to? How are you spending your money? What godless practices are you engaging in? Shows are you watching? We need to make sure that we are repenting of those godless practices and even enlisting other people to help us not to do those things again. Can't do it by ourselves. Willpower alone won't do it. We need the community of God. Lastly, we need to rely on His promises. Samuel, after the Israelites had gained victory, he had taken a rock and made it here, you know, in Ebenezer. Is the idea that God has helped us, and He will help us again. And the Scripture says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. That He's able to handle anything that we we give unto Him. We need to make sure that we are relying on His promises and not on ourselves. See, the reality that many of us have, the unfortunate reality that we all must face, is that we really are all, in some way or another, following a shattered faith. Not that the scripture or the truth of God is shattered, but it's our perception and implementation of it. That we are relying on our own righteousness, because we love our sin. We want our sin, and we want God. And when we love our sin, we take, and it could be any sin, by the way, it could be good things, good things that become the god things and then they become bad things and another name for that is idolatry we all have some type of idol one way or the other john john calvin the great theologian he actually said that our heights, hearts are idol factories we can make an idol out of anything we can make an idol out of our sports teams we can make an idol out of our own job, our career, our education. We can make it out of our family, our upbringing, our, I mean, we, the schooling that we put our children through. Our children become idols. These are idols that keep us from being what God wants us to be. And God is telling us now, just like Samuel was telling the Israelites, if you want to return to the Lord with all of your heart, you need to get rid of it. You've got to forsake that idol. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a time of prayer time of confession a time of repentance because god i know is speaking to different people i don't know who he's speaking to but i know he's speaking to somebody because that's what his word says that his word will not return void but will accomplish for every purpose for which he has intended it so we're going to have this time and i'm going to ask our our worship team to come up to to lead us and i want us to pause for a moment ask god to bring those idols to the surface that are keeping us from the from the knowledge of who he is that are causing us to embrace something that is not of God. And we need to repent of it. We need to forsake it. And this is the time to do it. Ask God to just transform you and bring that to the surface that we might might confess it and repent of it. So let's take that few moments now. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to lead us in prayer. And you can pray right where you're at. You can pray with someone that's nearby. You can pray at the front right up here. Whatever you need to do, just take this time to deal and come before God. Don't worry about what anyone else is thinking, what anyone else is doing, about when you need to get home, what you have going on, going to eat for dinner or lunch. Don't worry about that right now. This is the time that we need to spend time alone with God. So let's take these few moments. And if you need someone to pray with you, just step right up and I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you right now, whatever you need. Go ahead and play for us, Amanda. Father, Lord, we are so grateful to be able to call you Father, knowing that even though we might be shattered and we have followed things that are false, we've embraced the idolatry and the things of this world. Lord, we thank you that you offer us not a religion, but a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, that he paid the price for our sins, paid the price to set us free from our sins, suffering, sickness. Lord, that we come before you now, asking that you draw us near to yourself. Lord, we saw and read today how the Israelites had rebelled against you, even though they'd had the accoutrements, they had the trappings of religious faith, but really really, Lord, it had it had spiraled down, become not a faith of hope, but it had become a hypocritical means or superstition. Of relying on all the outward and not giving them, giving you the inward part of their life, their heart. Lord, may our hearts be completely devoted to you. Lord, you are the, the father to the fatherless, just as we read today and sang. You are the one who gives hope. You are the one who makes streams flow in the desert places. Lord, you are, ma- you are able to make all grace abound unto us. Lord, we come before you today knowing that we are sinful in and of ourselves. We come to you broken and contrite, knowing that you desire obedience more than sacrifice. And Lord, you desire us to come to you in godly sorrow, not in any righteousness of our own because we have none. We come to you entirely through Jesus, Jesus's blood, work, and life. And Lord, we ask you to use us to help us to be aligned unto the nation's. And help other people turn from a shattered, shattered religion into you, the living God, into a life-giving and changing relationship that transforms the heart and the mind and the body. So, Lord, glorify your name in our midst. Continue to do a great work. And through us, we give you all the glory, all of the praise, because, Lord, we know it's because of you, that you're doing a work here that no man can get credit for, that your spirit is here, it's working amongst us. And, Lord, we pray that it might do so more and more. Lord, we pray that you draw us near to yourself and that you show yourself to be God in our midst today. Lord, just as you have shown within your word time and time again, Lord, we know that when we repent, when we humble ourselves before you and when we call on your name, Lord, that you answer in ways that we do not always understand, but we know that you do answer and you show yourself to be the life-changing, hope-giving, mercy, mercy pouring out God. So Lord, transform us. Draw us near to Yourself. And Lord, for those who are here today and who have not yet trusted in You, Lord, I pray that You might show them the depth of Your love, that You love them so much that You sent Your Son to die on the cross for them, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were cast upon Him at that moment in time, that He paid that price. He became our mediator, that He took the wrath of God upon Himself so that in, by faith in Him, we were crucified with Him. Now we are risen again and participants within His resurrection life. Lord, touch us. Draw us near to yourself. Forgive us when we do fail. But restore us, Lord. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight, that your name might receive great, awesome glory, and that we might increase in joy. We thank you and we praise you for all that you have ever done in our lives and all the good that you're going to do. We pray this in the name that is above every name, knowing that at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.